Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. There is a complex relationship between climate change and food systems. Food supply chains, in particular food transportation, result in global greenhouse gas emissions. And these emissions are known to be a driving force underlying climate change. But it also works the other way. Climate change and extreme weather events disrupt food supply chains and reduce the availability of food and nutrients. What is contributing to this vicious cycle and is there any way of breaking it? To talk us through these issues, I'm joined by Dr. Aranima Malik, an award-winning researcher in the Integrated Sustainability Analysis Group at the School of Physics and in the Discipline of Accounting at the Business School of the University of Sydney. Aranima's research focuses on big data modelling to quantify sustainability impacts at local, national and global scales. Aranima's research is interdisciplinary and focuses on the appraisal of social, economic and environmental impacts using input-output analysis. She works with the United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network for quantifying spillover effects in international supply chains. And she was recently recognised with a Eureka Prize for Excellence in Interdisciplinary Research, considered to be Australia's most comprehensive and prestigious national science awards. Aranima, congratulations, and thank you so much for joining us on SEAC Stories. There's a bit of a vicious cycle between climate change and food systems, which I alluded to in my introduction. So I want to start by looking first at the emissions produced by food. Now, most of the attention in sustainable food research has been on the high emissions associated with animal-derived foods as opposed to plants. But you've been involved in a study that has shown that it's actually the emissions coming from transporting the food that we should be more worried about. Can you talk us through that? So the study that we did is a global assessment of food miles. This concept of food miles essentially means that you're considering the impact of food by not just looking at the production of food, but also the distance a food item travels from where it's made to where it's consumed. So it's somewhat like this concept of carbon footprint, but we are looking at transportation in particular. And this study that we did is a global study looking at production and consumption patterns in different countries and in a range of food producing sectors. The assessment found that about one fifth of greenhouse gas emissions from food sector are because of transportation. And this transportation happens across and between countries. And of course, the driving force is consumption, our our demand for food products. We also found, interestingly, that affluent countries, they make up a large proportion or a large contribution to this greenhouse gas footprint. And this is mostly because of the desire to have a range of products. These could either be out-of-season produce that is imported from overseas, one of the factors resulting in global greenhouse gas emissions from transportation of food. What are the main countries responsible for these food transport emissions? Do we see pronounced differences between high and low-income countries in terms of food transport emissions? 
This research looked at a range of countries. So we had the developed world and the developing countries. Of course, we found the large and emerging economies, they dominate the world food trade. We have China, Japan, the United States, the Eastern Europe, who are net importers of food miles and emissions. So food demand is higher than what's produced domestically. The net exporters of food miles are Brazil. We have Australia, India, and Argentina. And Australia is an interesting one because we are a primary producer of a range of fruits and vegetables that are exported to the rest of the world. So this research that looks at interconnections between different countries, between different food producing sectors and consumption is part of this multi-regional input-output analysis that researchers around the world often work with when they look at global international trade networks and link these to environmental impacts. So we looked in this study, particularly at greenhouse gas emissions, but there have been other studies done looking at impacts for a range of other social indicators. What about Southeast Asia in this analysis? What, what sort of findings did you have in, in the Southeast Asian region? So Southeast Asian region, if we look broader than food, Southeast Asian regions producers and consumers of food products. And our research shows that Southeast Asian regions, they do face the brunt of negative impacts when it comes to production of a range of commodities, which are then sent to other countries for consumption, for exports. But at the same time, it's important to look at trade-offs as well. So we're talking here about, presumably, if we put it in the crudest sense, as negative impacts, but also it's important to look at the positive impacts in terms of people getting jobs and income because of this global international trade network. Right. And does your input-output analysis take that into account, or is it more focused on the emissions that are being generated? The input-output analysis techniques considers a range of environmental, social, and economic indicators. In the environmental indicator space, we have greenhouse gas emissions, uh, we have energy use, we can look at nitrogen emissions, we can also look at biodiversity threats, which is an interesting indicator that allows us to understand how production of a particular commodity results in threats to animal species potentially lose animals losing their habitat because of production of crops, for example. Social indicators are, are also an interesting one that can be analyzed using input-output analysis. And in recent years, there has been an increase in studies looking at a range of social indicators, occupational hazards, accidents at work, which are associated with production of commodities. So we did a study looking at textile products, for example, and how production of these textile products in South Asian countries is resulting in impacts related to fatal accidents and non-fatal accidents at work and how developed nations are sort of driving these impacts. We're also now starting to look at modern slavery as an indicator. So these social impacts that are embodied in supply chains. An interesting thing also with input-output analysis is that you can look at these indicators and also link these with UN Sustainable Development Goals to see how different countries are sort of performing in terms of SDG goals, targets, and indicators. And what is the interconnection in terms of this global international trade network? Who is driving these impacts and where exactly are these impacts happening on the ground? I was really interested to see that the transport emissions are food type dependent. There is a bit of an assumption that, you know, fruit and vegetables are good and animal-based products are bad, but it's not necessarily the case, is it? Not really. So these transport to production emissions depend on these emission ratios. And there's a bit of an interplay 
between distances, there's modes of transportation, and also refrigeration needs. So if you need foods to be cooled at a certain temperature for them to be transported, then of course, all that comes into play when it comes to emissions associated with transportation. And the study that we did, it considered all these variables or these factors in the assessment at a global level, because we wanted to capture these impacts from the interplay between distances, modes of transportation, refrigeration needs for a range of food-related sectors, and also international supply chain networks. So there has been research undertaken on transportation-related impacts of food using life cycle assessment techniques, so conventional life cycle assessment, not necessarily taking the entire supply chain into account. But that was one of the things that we really wanted to capture in this study to make it comprehensive in the sense that we're able to capture these different variables that play a role in transportation of food and also the upstream supply chain. So when you're transporting food from point A to point B, if you're needing a truck for transportation, where exactly is the truck coming from? You, of course, need to put together the truck, but then what is required for putting together the truck? You start to unravel this upstream supply chain You need electricity for um, manufacturing the truck. You need all sorts of machinery, but then where does electricity come from? If you have an economy that's reliant on fossil fuels, then you have coal that's required for electricity. It's like a chain that you start to unravel to understand that transportation of food is actually quite complex with all these different sectors playing a role in coming together for really transporting food from point A to point B. That word complex is really what comes through when I think about supply chains. How can you be sure with your input-output analysis model that you are capturing all these different variables? Do you ever get to the end of your analysis and think, oh my gosh, we forgot to include the trucks? Maybe I'll start with a bit of a history of how input-output analysis came from. So Wassily Leontev, who's the father of input-output analysis, he got a Nobel Prize for coming up with this technique. And this technique relies on linear algebra matrices that consider starting point is that your economy is interconnected. But then there are some mathematical formulations that happen behind the scenes of all these calculations and the results that we've presented in the study that consider every single supply chain. So we look at suppliers, suppliers of suppliers, suppliers of suppliers of suppliers, suppliers of suppliers. So it just keeps going. There is no end to it. And I've put this in a very simplistic term, but if I talk about terminology, we say that there is no system boundary. So it's boundary free. And because it's boundary free, we don't really miss any truck or any other transportation mode, as long as we've considered this detail in the input output sectors that we are considering. There is variation in terms of input-output sectors, whether you're considering a table with 50 sectors or you're considering a table with 150 sectors. So there is this resolution aspect that comes into play when you work with input-output tables. But regardless of the table that you work with, you do end up considering all the upstream supply chains. And that's just a way of how the model and the technique works. And you said that the founder of this approach won a Nobel Prize for developing the model. How do you account for new technologies in this approach? So when this technique, input-output analysis, first came into play, Vasily Leontief constructed a simple input-output table for United States. So that was really the starting point. We did not have any global databases to account for international trade linkages. So the technique really has grown over time. And we have people in Europe working on this, in different countries working on this technique for input-output analysis. And something which I will highlight in terms of an advancement in, the, in this technique is this concept of virtual laboratories. So it's like a virtual lab, 
you go into that lab, you have an underlying data set, uh, which is very detailed, captures the economy. And you can use that underlying data set and a technology that comes with it uh, in a virtual laboratory to construct your own input-output databases. Particularly true for some of the countries that we've developed this technology for. So Indonesia, for example, is an interesting case. So with support from the federal ministry, we had people at the University of Sydney who developed very detailed multi-regional input-output database for Indonesia, which we call the Indonesian Virtual Laboratory Platform. It has information about all the different regions in Indonesia, different sectors, and it has been used for a number of assessments. And one of the ones that which I can briefly mention is disaster assessments. So the field has moved on quite a bit from when it first was conceived or put together by Vasily Leontief. Uh, we have now global input-output databases, which help us in analyzing these international trade linkages, such as the study that we've done. We are now also working on a nested approach, which would allow researchers to analyze impacts at specific local areas. Uh, you can nest Indonesian multi-regional input-output table in a global table to see, ooh, you have a specific region in Indonesia interacting with Germany, for example, or France, for example. How are the production and the consumption patterns playing out in this regional global interaction? So there's a lot of work happening in improving these multi-regional input-output databases that really form the foundation of some of these studies that we're working on. Thank you so much. That was a really valuable overview of the field and I think really useful for most of us who don't know that much about supply chains or supply chain analysis. So we've talked a little bit about the emissions produced by food, in particular food transportation, which you say accounts for almost 20% of global food emissions. I want to look now at the impact of climate change and adverse weather events on food supply chains. And you did mention just then disasters in Indonesia, right? And this is the other part of the vicious cycle. So your recent paper in Nature Food looked at the climate change impacts across different sectors and regions. What did you find? So this recent paper found that impacts of climate change and extreme weather events, they can really ripple through to a range of non-food sectors and regions which are not directly impacted by climate change. So just to give an example, let's say we have we have a region which experiences drought or cyclone, and in that region we have certain sectors which are directly impacted. And by impacted, I mean that there is a reduction in output, could be a food output from those sectors which are directly affected by a disaster. Our study found that these direct impacts, they actually ripple through to other regions and sectors in the economy, these indirect supply chain linkages, to result in these so-called spillover impacts. So it's like we have a direct impact taking place in one region, in one sector, and then that impact spills over to other regions and other sectors of the economy because of the interconnected nature. So if you have bananas being impacted because of cyclones in Queensland, for example, then it wouldn't just be Queensland and the banana sector that would be impacted, but it would also be these other sectors in parts of WA, for example, Western Australia, could be New South Wales. We would have transportation sectors being impacted, service sectors being impacted. So our study sort of looked at a number of these case studies for extreme weather events, climate change related events to see, well, if there's a reduction in output of food sectors, how does that have an impact on other regions and sectors of the economy? I think the word that you use was cascading. 
which really brought home the multiple repercussions generated by continuing climate variability and, and these frequent weather events. I was amazed to realise that they can also trigger things like zoonotic diseases from animals and impact on migration, for example. So if we're thinking of the bananas in Queensland, that might have an impact on seasonal labourers coming from Southeast Asia, for example. There are wide-ranging impacts in terms of social impacts and environmental impacts when you when you have disasters such as the ones that we've modelled. Yeah, so it's such um, multidisciplinary work. You've talked a little bit about maths and I know that you're associated with the discipline of accounting. Who else was on this team that looked at the relationship between adverse weather events and food supply chains? So we had academics from Charles Perkins Centre. We collaborated with academics from outside of University of Sydney as well, uh, so experts in food systems. We also collaborated with Department of Planning, Industry and Environment because we needed to have perspectives on New South Wales and, and climate change scenarios. We have mathematicians, we have economists, we have biologists, we have physicists, and we have engineers on this very diverse co-author team as we've looked at this study. So this research on supply chains and looking at input-output databases, it's not just part of one discipline. You need to bring in experts from a range of disciplines with perspectives on how does the economy work? Well, then we need economists. Well, how, how do you actually churn big data in analyzing supply chain networks? Then you need programmers, mathematicians. We also, interestingly, in this study, looked at nutrition as one of the angles to see if there is a climate change related event or um, there's heat waves, drought then it's not just economy that's impacted, but also nutrient availability. So if you have certain food sectors that experience a reduction in output, then that would ripple through to consumers in the sense that they would see a reduction in macronutrients, availability of carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. And when you're assessing these aspects, then you need a food systems expert on the team as well. So we have different experts on the team that really bring in expertise to really make this study happen. I mean, you've really sold the interdisciplinary aspect of the research here, but which we're really interested in at the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. But of course, I want to make sure that Southeast Asia is part of this conversation. What are the implications in Southeast Asia in terms of nutritional frameworks, for example? So this study that we've performed, that's a case study for Australia, but I feel this is a starting point for assessments in this space. The use of virtual laboratories enable a construction of a detailed regional input-output database. So for this study, as a prototype, we constructed regional input-output database for Australia, and we modeled a couple of disasters that directly impacted food production in Australia to look at the impact on regions and, and sectors within, within Australia. We can take a virtual laboratory for Indonesia, for example, because we have one that's available for use to construct a multi-regional input-output table for Indonesia to assess how disasters in Southeast Asia impact certain sectors of the economy, uh, be it food sector or could be any other sector in the economy, and how that ripples through to South Asian countries and also South Asian countries trading partners around the world. So this research in food systems supply chain assessment, international trade linkages, I feel is a starting point for further studies in this space. Absolutely. So how would you like to see the results of your research being used by both policymakers and by local communities? 
So the findings from the study really highlight a couple of things. Our economy is interconnected. We need to concentrate our efforts widely across a range of sectors and regions if we are to build resilience in dealing with climate change. So the findings from the study could be used for informing decision-making at multiple levels. So in this study, we've looked at regional level impacts, how rural areas are impacted in comparison to urban areas. Vulnerability was one of the things that we assessed in the study and income levels, education levels, how they feature in when it comes to the impacts for disasters. So as authors, we hope that the findings for this study would support state level or federal level policy development, could be conversations with communities to better inform them about climate-related events uh, and how they have a wider impact across the sectors and the regions. And also for infrastructure planning, we see that if you have a food sector being impacted by climate change, then further down the track, because of interconnected supply chains, we have transportation sectors impacted, service sectors impacted. So how does that flow through to different sectors of the economy and how we can make it a more resilient economic system? And if I can make one more point, even though we haven't considered bushfires as one of the disasters in this study that we published, but that's something that we're currently working on. And it's quite interesting to see Australia and this interconnected framework could enable quantification of impacts for disasters that have already taken place to further inform policy around strengthening supply chain linkages. Such interesting work, Erin. We've recently recorded another podcast on haze issues in an Indonesian and trans-regional context. It would be really interesting to see how that links in with this sort of research as well. But thank you for sharing, you know, information about this Indonesian laboratory and the really interdisciplinary work you've been doing to better understand the relationship between climate change and food emissions. It's absolutely fascinating. And I think you've just given us a glimpse behind the curtain today. Good luck with your future research and congratulations on your wonderful science prize. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.